By the way, that was not just a song, that was an invitation, that was an exhortation to worship the only God worth worshiping. We'll be in Acts 14 this morning, we will finish the chapter. If you've been with us, needless to say, it's been an eventful first missionary journey for Paul and Barnabas thus far. Last week, our beloved apostles were mistaken for gods. But mobs are notoriously fickle, especially when they don't get their way. Perhaps they're disappointed in this instance when they discover that Paul and Barnabas are not here to bless them with material wealth, to give them prosperity. In any event, the text we reached this morning has a much different atmosphere than what we saw last week. And Paul's in good company. His Savior knew this well. He was met on Palm Sunday with cries of Hosanna, and five days later he heard the words, crucify him. Like Jesus before him, Paul will remain unshaken and unmoved. They share a common opponent as well. Jewish opposition will arrive this morning from Antioch and from Iconium. By the way, we are a hundred miles from Antioch. That is determined persecution. And Paul's missionary career is almost ended prematurely this morning. Fortunately, the living God had other plans. When I thought, think of Paul going back into the city, which is what we will see today, uh, you all know I'm fairly literary, uh, but Shakespeare came to mind, imagine that. And that's where the title came from, if you are not in the Shakespearean world, but it comes from Shakespeare's play, Henry V, written in 1599. Uh, Henry V is the continuing story, if you saw the prequels of Henry IV, part one and two, uh, Henry V follows, and then Henry VI comes after that, it's very convenient. But Henry V was a real historical king in England, he ruled from 1413 to 1422, probably don't know too much about 15th century English history, but that's where he was. And in the play and in life, he invaded France to claim a throne that he believed to be his, It's set during the time of the Hundred Years' War. And if you want some of that useless knowledge, how long does the Hundred Years' War last? If you guessed 116 years, you were right. (laughs) That's what it is. But in Act 3, while exhorting his vastly outnumbered army to battle, Henry delivers a, a famous speech. Or more accurately, William Shakespeare delivers a speech through the character of Henry. But I believe it's a speech that the Apostle Paul could have related to. Make no mistake, this is a speech to an army going to war. It's by no means Christian. It's by no means couched in missionary journeys. But our commitment to Christ and his gospel often leads us into battle, both physical and spiritual. So while the context is physical battle here, I would like you to listen to Henry's speech through our biblical worldview, clothed in the armor of God so graciously furnished to you by our Father in heaven. Henry said, once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility, but when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger, stiffen the sinews, conjure up the blood, disguise fair nature with hard-favored rage. As for the real Henry V, after the great victory At Agincourt, he forbade any songs to be composed and ordered that all the glory should be given to God. Over 2,500 years before Shakespeare wrote those words, 
King Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 3. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And when it's time for you and I to lay it on the line for the gospel... Or even to simply step out of our comfort zone in order to further the cause of Christ. Or to strengthen the body of Christ. We must be prepared. We must be willing. The Christian life is commitment. It is sacrifice. And it's passionate in its service to the Savior and his church. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time of worship that we've had. Thank you for the time in your word we've had already. Thank you for the application of that word in our families and in, uh, in our lives. I pray you would bless the preaching of your word this morning, Lord. Speak through your preacher, speak through your servant, be glorified for your sake and for the sake of your church. And we give you the glory in Jesus' name, amen. If you would like an outline, here we go, and it's going to move fairly quickly through those pieces. But the enemies are coming in those first two verses. Then we get a very quick summary of ministry in Derby. Then there is work to be done. We will see more gospel preaching, more disciples being made. Uh, Then they head home, and we go back to Antioch to meet with the sending church there, and I want to spend a little time there at the end of the chapter. So let's start in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing him to be dead. There are instances in Scripture where we come across these things where something happens and then literally a verse or two later, the exact opposite happens. It it makes me think of Matthew 16 with Peter's great confession of the faith, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. You know, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Literally five verses later, Jesus is telling Peter to get behind me, Satan. That's quite a turn of events. Well, two verses ago, Paul and Barnabas were being worshipped as Greek gods. They were being paraded through the city. Festal bulls were being brought out for the sacrifice. And in verse 19, he is stoned, and they think he's dead. That's quite a turn of events. Remember back in 14.5, at the beginning of this chapter, there was a threat of stoning in Iconium. And Paul and Barnabas escaped the city. Well, that stoning becomes a reality here in Lystra. And of course, Paul is the target. Why? He's the spokesman. He's Hermes, right? From last week, he is the eloquent speaker. If he can be put to silence, the aggressors thought, the gospel message dies right here along with him. And if you've been present for this study, perhaps this incident sounds somewhat familiar. You'll remember back in Acts chapter 7, verse 57, but they cried out, these are the Jewish authorities there, They cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him, him being Stephen, with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet 
of a young man named Saul. We just called him Paul. So in an, ep- an episode that's reminiscent of Stephen's murder in chapter 7, Paul falls victim to the mob violence that he once supported before his conversion to Christ. I, I think it likely, and this is sanctified imagination, I'll admit that, but I think it likely that as the stones rain down, how could Paul not think of Stephen? And how could he not think of Stephen's prayer and Stephen's peace before his executioners? By the way, I think the reason that in both cases the victim is driven out and disposed of outside of the city really shows the vigilante nature of this killing, as well as the fear that they have of Roman retribution because they know they're breaking the law here. Sure, they could appeal to purity laws. We don't want to have any dead bodies inside the city. But appealing to purity laws in the face of murder is rather hypocritical, wouldn't you say? But I believe that both of these instances are colored by fear. They're trying to do this quickly. And I talked about this briefly in chapter 7, but let's just touch on it again. In the Old Testament, stoning is the prescribed punishment. This is why we know it's Jewish authorities doing this, because that's the Jewish mode of execution. Thirteen transgressions in the law, including numerous sexual sins and idolatry, are punishable by stoning. The Mishnah and the Talmud, the, the oral law, gives a very specific guideline on how capital punishment was supposed to be carried out. And what's clear in both of these instances, both with Stephen and Paul, the men here observe none of those. In rabbinic law, capital punishment may only be inflicted by the verdict of a regularly constituted court of 23 qualified members. Not a jury of 12, but a jury of 23. There must be the most trustworthy and convincing testimony of at least two qualified eyewitnesses to the crime. That's from Deuteronomy 17.6 and Deuteronomy 19.15. It's also reaffirmed by Jesus in Matthew 18.16. Need to have two or three witnesses. And those two or three witnesses must also depose that the culprit had been forewarned of the criminality, had been forewarned of the consequences, and as Jesus said, must cast the first stone. If you're going to bring accusations against someone, you have to take responsibility for it. So we have what we have here is a flagrant violation of both Jewish law and Roman law. But it seems in the moment that the execution has succeeded. Not many people walked away from stonings. Paul is so badly assaulted that they suppose him to be dead. They toss his body on an ash heap outside of the city, walking away seemingly thinking they have defeated the faction and have opposed the gospel. Oh, but looks can be deceiving, can't they? Verse 20. But while the disciples stood around him, try to picture the scene. The disciples now approach Paul's lifeless body, maybe to see if he's still alive, maybe to decide how to proceed with his burial. If they're willing, probably they're thinking, if the Jews are willing to brutally stone him, they might be interested in enforcing more disrespect onto Paul's body. But as they gather around him, a strange thing happens. (laughs) He got up and he entered the city. The question is sometimes asked if Paul actually died and was raised. But I think Luke's phrase where he says, supposing he was dead, seems to indicate he was very badly injured. He was obviously unconscious, but this is probably not a case of resurrection. But this is divine intervention. There is a miracle happening here. God's deliverance of his own from a dire threat like this is a special testimony to God's protective providence of his people. This is a superhuman recovery. Let's not miss that. 
and it points to divine power, and his desire to enter the city again. That is striking in this situation. Without the filling of the Holy Spirit, why would you go back into that city? It's difficult to fully describe the courage of Paul here, the tenacity of the apostle in rearing a city in which hours before people attempted to kill him. None of us would criticize him if he had just said, you know what, dusting my sandals off and I'm heading to the next city. That would have been a reasonable thing to do. In fact, let me find a city very far from this place. John Wesley once said, always look a mob in the face. And Paul means to do just that. If Shakespeare was here, he might say once more unto the breach, dear friends. Imagine the impact on the young disciples that are present watching this happen. Men don't act like this. They don't do things like this. It's a remarkable testimony also to the transformation that had taken place in Paul's life. In Paul's estimation, Christ is something worth dying for, whereas formerly it was something worth killing for. No sacrifice is too great for the cause of the gospel. As he would write to the Philippians years later, to live is Christ and to die is gain. A brief side note. There is a school of thought that this experience that I'm about to show you occurred while Paul was supposedly dead outside the gates of Lystra, and I only want to spend a minute here. But in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says this, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Now, I don't think this is where that happened. I don't think the years match up. So I'd push back against that, that argument. But if we would just stop for a moment while we're here and consider this, consider what Paul experienced, perhaps we can see even more clearly why Paul re-enters the city, why Paul never ceases to preach the gospel even when people want to kill him. By the way, just a side note, if you need a scripture that discredits the modern proliferation of men and children claiming to have gone to heaven and back, here it is. Paul can't even speak of it, let alone describe it in shockingly unbiblical ways, as those books often do. But that's what makes a bestseller. So He also talks about these events in other epistles. These are landmark events where Paul suffered. He says in 2 Timothy 3.11 that he suffered persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. He's mentioning this here to Timothy many years later. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Well, here is an example of that rescue. Paul mentions this event specifically in 2 Corinthians 11.25 when he lists his catalogs of suffering. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. Well, he says, once I was stoned. This is the one he's talking about. That's the only one we have in Scripture. In Galatians 6.17, he writes, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus when he writes back to these very people. Events such as this led him to write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. 
The triumph of the gospel comes hand in hand with and through the means of tribulation. And the modern world doesn't want to hear that, but it could hardly be any other way. Because at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the good news of Jesus, is a historical reality of excruciating pain and suffering on a cross in Jerusalem. Why would the treatment of his church be any different? Verse 20, the second half. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, and I know I'm cutting off in the middle of a sentence there, but there's a purpose to it. Paul does go back into the city. And we're encouraged by his boldness and his commitment to the Gospels. Many disciples are made there. Most likely, including a man named Gaius, who we are introduced to as a companion of Paul in Acts chapter 20. It's very interesting that the churches in the big cities are the ones that we know and are very influential. But Paul picked up trusted friends in small towns. Out of uh, uh, Derby, he gets Gaius. Out of Lystra, he will have Timothy. At the same time, Paul and Barnabas don't linger in this city. (laughs) He goes back in, he's bold for the gospel, people come to Christ, and he moves along. They move down the road to the city of Derby, 60 miles to the east. I mean, this, this report in verse 20 is brief, and it's humbling. I mean, think about this. We often complain and make excuses for very trivial things. Not pointing the finger, and I'm pointing the finger at myself. Paul was stoned and near death yesterday. Today, he walked 60 miles to go share the gospel. A preacher once said, I I once saw the track of a bleeding hare across the snow. That was Paul's track across Europe. I also have no doubt that the encouragement of Barnabas was essential on this journey. We all need a Barnabas, especially when the bruises are still fresh. So we head east to Derby. Derby was located on what we might call the frontier of the region. It's basically a military outpost. It's a Roman military outpost. It's a custom station. It's a toll booth. If you're traveling through this region, you will pay customs at Derby. And if that's true, it's a smart move by Paul and Barnabas, because with a strong Roman presence there, you know who will be much less likely to follow them, Jewish authorities. Now, Paul and Barnabas certainly preach the gospel while they are in Derby. It says that we've got disciples coming to Christ. And that makes sense, too, because we've seen already that Roman centurions have proven to be a very receptive audience to the gospel. And more fruit is produced there in the form of disciples. It becomes the easternmost church established on Paul's missionary journeys. Historical records indicate that Derby was a Christian city in later centuries. That attests to the influence of Paul and his multiple visits. But a secondary purpose, I believe, is to escape, at least for a moment of respite, a moment of regrouping, because there's a raging fire of persecution burning behind them. It's a moment to catch their breath. However, as we read in the following verse, as soon as they're back on their feet, they don't rest, and they don't even go home. Their concern returns to the disciples who have believed in those cities that they have just left. They don't intend to leave them, and so a plan is made to return to the very places where their lives were threatened. Ministry is oftentimes putting your own safety, your own well-being, and your own comfort aside for those you've been called to serve. Ministry is messy, ministry is dangerous, but ministry is absolutely necessary in the church. 
the modern evangelistic model of preach a message, note some decisions, and leave never to be seen again is entirely foreign to Paul. He's been called to make disciples, and so have you, and so have I. And, and Paul refuses to let a disciple go undiscipled. I don't think that's a word, but uh, Paul will not allow a disciple to be undiscipled if he can help it. And he will go back into the lion's den just to make sure that happened. And verse 21 is simple and, and, and beautiful. They return to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And in the world we're going, why? <laughs> why would you go back to those places? Are you crazy? Well, do you remember when Jesus also decided to return to Jerusalem after they had wanted to kill him? And Thomas said, well, let's all go and die with him. That's the will of the Lord. Understand, it would have been much easier to leave. Nobody would have blamed them. They've shared the gospel. They've scattered seed. What else can they possibly do there? Not just from a persecution perspective, but from a pragmatic perspective. But what's the lesson that we need to see here? That disciple makers place the needs of the people of God above their own comforts, their own conveniences, and their own personal preferences. So they return on the same way that they left revisiting the newly established churches along the route. First Lystra, then Iconium, finally Antioch. But don't miss this. I put the star up there for a reason. Paul and Barnabas could have easily continued down further east and south through the region of what's called Cilicia. And guess what's in Cilicia? Paul's hometown of Tarsus, 150 miles southeast of Derby. No resistance. They're out on the frontier. Let's go home and get a home-cooked meal. It'd be a lot easier to go that way. Ultimately, they're going back to their sending church of Antioch, which is right over there. That's where they're ultimately heading. That's a much easier journey if they just head back to Tarsus and then on over to Antioch. That's about 200 miles from Derby. That's a logical thing, it's a fairly simple thing, and it's a far more safe route to return home. They chose, however, to retrace their footsteps and revisit all the congregations that had been established in the course of the mission, a journey of about 700 miles. No cars, no buses, no trains. If that were not enough, he's going to pen the letter to the Galatians after this journey is completed and send it to these churches. He's going to return to these churches in chapter 16 when he begins his second missionary journey, and again in chapter 18 on his third missionary journey. You think Paul took discipleship seriously? The work of evangelism is vitally important in the proclamation of the gospel. We must preach and relay the truth well. However, if we stop there, we fail our fellow believers, and we fail to fulfill the great commission given to us by Jesus himself. Disciple-making is our business. And business is good as long as it's blessed by the Lord. Whether it's one disciple or 1,000. That's the business at hand. So what did they do when they went back to those churches? Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Someone should tell Paul this is not how you pump your church attendance numbers up, talking about tribulations and trials. But his honesty is striking. This is not a country club membership. It's an invitation to sacrifice, to suffer, maybe even die. No doubt word of his stoning had reached their ears 
Can you imagine these guys coming back into the city and saying, we got him, we shut him up, we stoned him back there in Lystra, and three months later he walks through the gates. Another powerful statement for Christ and his story. Two essential ministries that go on in the church, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Both of these terms, strengthening and encouraging, are used frequently in Acts in establishing and fortifying new converts and new churches. What does it mean to strengthen the souls of the disciples? Well, it involved further teaching. It involved further preaching, giving instructions and living a Christian life. It's just food for the soul. Not food for the body, but food for the soul. Paul was talking about just that in Timothy, where we covered Wednesday night. And then the second thing he does is he encourages them to continue, to persevere. Discouragement and trials should be met with encouragement and solidarity. Keep the faith, brothers and sisters. Christ suffered, so should we. Stay strong, persevere. And these disciples need to know this. And so do we. Because our human minds see trials and tribulations as punishment from God. If something difficult is happening, we wonder what we've done. We wonder why God is bringing us these things. But if trials come because we're living for the gospel, those are sanctifying moments. They're opportunities to serve, to love, to suffer alongside, to encourage. Paul and Barnabas have faced persecution almost constantly since this this journey began. So who better to encourage these young Christians who are being persecuted in the midst of their trials? And that's encouraging. I would just say this, consider the closer you stand to the king, the more likely you are to draw the enemy's fire. found this passage from J.I. Packer, and I'm just going to read it to you, about trials. He said, trials are designed to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy and to drive us to cling to him more closely. God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities to ensure that we shall learn to hold him fast. The reason why the Bible spends so much of its time reiterating that God is a strong rock, a firm defense, a sure refuge, and a help for the weak is that God spends so much of his time bringing home to us that we are weak, both mentally and morally, and dare not trust ourselves to find or follow the right road. God wants us to feel that our way through life is rough and perplexing so that we may learn, thankfully, to lean on him. Therefore, he takes steps to drive us out of our self-confidence to trust in him, to wait upon the Lord. In light of that, we do not despair. We are not without hope because God is the one on whom we have set our hope. And suffering, Scripture tells us, is tied to glory. Romans 8, 17. And if children... Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. How do we know we're fellow heirs with Christ? If indeed we suffer with him so that we also might be glorified by him, with him. 2 Thessalonians 1.4 We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. For what? For your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And of course 2 Timothy 2.12 If we endure, we also reign with him. Where did Paul get such a crazy idea? I bet you know. He got it from his Savior. Look what Matthew, uh, in Matthew 5, where Jesus said at the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, we've talked about this many times. Marshall and I did a podcast on this a while back. It's so counterintuitive to what the world tells you. And yet we understand because we know Christ. We understand the person and work of Christ. We understand the sacrifice of Christ. And to be included in any way in that amazing grace is a beautiful thing. Dustin Benj, in his recent book, The Loveliest Place, wrote this He said about these verses. He says, There is a paradoxical mystery within the words, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice while suffering. Be glad amid ridicule. How can this be? This mystery is unveiled in the depth of our unyielding assurance that being with Jesus in glory will far more than reward us for any suffering we faced in this life. He continues, Our rejoicing and gladness proceed from faith in the unseen realm of eternity. The same faith that accepts Jesus Christ as Lord, the same faith that transforms us from one degree of glory to another, the same faith that stares our persecutors in the face and prays, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing. These persecutions are preparing us or bringing about an eternal weight of glory. That leaves one more important ministry to be done in the church, and it's found in verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Remember, these church plants were not planned out and organized ahead of time. No forward planning, no launch teams, just preach the gospel and see what the Lord does. And so these nascent congregations have no elders in place which leaves them vulnerable to attack. So before Paul and Barnabas can move on in good conscience, they set about to establish biblical church leadership in these cities. And the pattern here is definitively Jewish. They build on what they know. It's the model of the synagogue in which elders rule in the authority there. The they in the verse refers to Paul and Barnabas. They appoint the elders. Now, that doesn't mean the congregations were not involved at all in the selection of leaders, But in such a new congregation, Paul must make sure that the men selected meet the necessary qualifications. Perhaps Paul did consult the disciples in the respective cities in this process. I think it likely he did. Years later, he will write letters to both Timothy and Titus in detail describing the requirements for elders. But notice the process was bathed in prayer and fasting. The selection of church leadership was then and is now a monumentally important task for a local church because the future survival and maturity of a local church could hinge on the men selected. This is Paul's church planning 101. Quickly prepare the church for independence. He wants them to stand on their own two feet. Do not allow them to become dependent on him and then follow up as frequently as possible to disciple them further towards maturity. He left them with three essentials apostolic teaching and doctrine, qualified overseers and elders, and the Holy Spirit to guide, protect, and bless them. It's a simple church planting strategy, and it bore fruit in that day. Verse 24, they passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. I know a lot of, a lot of cities there. It makes you a little nervous when we hit that. But let me just show you. There's the, there's the route back from Derby to Lystra to Iconium to Antioch. They head back down to Perga. It's just a reverse of the way they came. Pamphylia is that region south of Pisidia. 
So they come down off of the Taurus Mountains. They drop down about 3,000 feet in elevation to sea level. It's ultimately the same journey they made in chapter 13. Atalia is the harbor that's just southwest of Perga. But notice again that they do not pass through a city without speaking the word. They, do the, they speak the word in Perga. Their mission is clear and they are committed. And interestingly enough, archaeologists have discovered a Christian chapel there in Perga that dates to Paul's day. That could attest to his witness in the city. All told, this entire journey through Cyprus, Galatia, and back again has taken roughly a year and a half. By my lights, we are now in the fall of A.D. 49. Verse 26. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. So now we take a bit of a boat ride. I know that's not a biblical boat. It's more like the Mayflower, but we're going to get there either way. By the time they return to their sending church, Paul and Barnabas have traveled at minimum 500 miles by sea and 700 miles by land. Some estimate closer to 1,400 miles total on this missionary journey. Verse 27, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In chapter 13, it was the Antioch church that had commissioned these apostles, committing them to the Lord by prayer and fasting, and identifying with their mission by the laying on of hands. Well, this initial work was now complete, and the two missionaries come home to give the report to their sending congregation. By the way, this informs our own missionary philosophy here at PBC. We want to know who our missionaries are. We want to have a personal relationship with them. We want to hear from them regularly. Why? Well, several reasons. First of all, we're investing the Lord's money into missionary efforts. We want to be responsible. We want to be good stewards. We want to be accountable to our missionaries, and we want our missionaries to be accountable to us. If their message changes, if their mission changes, we must be aware and act accordingly. Further, if we don't know our missionaries personally, then how can we possibly pray for them effectively? This is why missionaries should be intimately connected with a local church or churches, so that the gospel remains primary, stewardship is practiced biblically, and service on both sides is exercised to the glory of God. The bombshell statement that they bring back is, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. We'll get to this in the next chapter, but this is the very controversy that will be dealt with in Jerusalem in chapter 15. First of all, notice it was God, not Paul and Barnabas, who had accomplished the successes of the journey. All that God had done with them. They were simply tools. Most importantly, the church at Antioch now knows that the Gentiles could believe the gospel. And we've talked about that before, and that is a huge deal, and we'll talk about it more in coming weeks. But you'll remember that in chapter 11, verse 20, Luke wrote that men from this church at Antioch began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So this church was on the, on the frontier of sharing the gospel with Gentiles. They're aware of their own experience of Gentiles coming to the faith there. Perhaps they've known of the Ethiopian eunuch and, and Philip's ministry. Certainly they've heard of Cornelius and Caesarea, but, but those are individuals. That's a family over here. 
Those are local occurrences in, in close proximity to the Holy Land. They certainly couldn't foresee how the message of the gospel would be received in the great big Roman Empire. How will it be received when we take it out there? Paul uses that open door metaphor several times in Scripture to describe opportunities for ministry. He will say, the Lord opened the door for that opportunity. And here, the door has not only been opened, it's been kicked in by the Holy Spirit. All who believe, Jew and Gentile, may find salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole main idea of chapters 13 and 14. The gospel has gone to Gentiles as Gentiles. They can come to to God by grace through faith just as Jewish believers do. Paul would write the definitive description of this development in Ephesians chapter 2 where he portrays the dividing wall of the temple separating Jews and Gentiles being torn down, allowing, allowing all who come to faith in Christ access to God. In Ephesians 2.12, he says, Remember, speaking of the Gentiles, that you were at that time separate from Christ. He says you were having no hope and you were without God in the world. And then verse 13 says, But now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. As we will see in chapter 15, this is a major issue that must be overcome by the early church because they're dealing with misinterpretations. They're dealing with long-held beliefs, misunderstandings, cultural and ethnic biases. This is something that must be dealt with and we will finally reach that in the next chapter. Finally, verse 28 And they spent a long time with the disciples. I would just say in our nonstop driven world, this verse is really beautiful in its simplicity. They spent a long time with the disciples. Paul and Barnabas have been gone 18 months. They report back to the church. They share in the amazement of what the Lord has done. And then they simply spend time with their brothers and sisters in Christ. They probably get family and church updates. Babies have been born. Elder members of the church have probably passed on. They encourage one another. They tell stories. They praise God together. They most assuredly pray. Love and fellowship, rejoicing and weeping, investment in the proclamation of the gospel, believers dedicated to the glory of God. We should have all the time in the world for those things. I want to conclude with a word from the Apostle John concerning this otherworldly Christian fellowship. And it comes in his first epistle, where he writes in chapter 1, verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us. From all sin. What defines our fellowship as believers? The very nature of God Himself. God is light, and so we as followers of Christ walk in the light. God has no darkness in Him, and so we are not to walk in the darkness. God is truth, and truth is the basis for godly fellowship. If we are walking in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The body of Christ cannot exist without that true fellowship. If something destroys fellowship, it's of the darkness and has no place in Christ's church. And how does that fellowship happen? Because we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. 
We share that common salvation. We are indwelt by that same spirit. We are reconciled to God, and because we are reconciled to him, we are reconciled to one another. So in a world that is perpetually divided, do you feel that when you turn on the television nowadays? The local church is called to be, to, to be unified in God and with one another. This can't happen at a distance. can't happen in isolation. It grows and flourishes with time, consistency, and commitment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I just don't want us to miss this poignant truth. In the busyness of ministry and the hectic nature of life, the church makes family time a priority. And I know we, I'm, when I say that, we think of our own families, and that is certainly important. But it makes church family time a priority. It's something that simply cannot be accomplished through virtual means. I'm thankful that we have the means to stay connected, whether that be through social media, text messages, and the like. It's an effective tool to reach out and connect, but it cannot replace what we need here, what we see in Antioch. It cannot replace brothers and sisters in Christ living life together, praying together, hurting and rejoicing together. That's Christian fellowship, and it's essential. Acts 2.42 says that the early church were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It's a simple thing, but it's a challenging thing. But the church being the church glorifies God. To borrow from Henry V once more, with the church in view, more specifically with our local church in view. Henry said, we few, we happy few. We band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Perhaps we could change some things out and say, For he today that prays with me shall be my brother. For he today that rejoices with me shall be my brother. For he today that suffers with me shall be my brother. For he today who worships the Lord in spirit and truth with me shall be my brother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious God. You are worthy of our praise. You are sovereign and mighty. You provide for us, Lord. You sanctify us. You provide blessings in our lives, Lord. You work us through trials and tribulations in our lives so that we become more like your son, so that we can become more of the church that you've called us to be so that we can love one another, we can pray with one another, Lord, and we can glorify your name above all else. We can preach your gospel. We can make disciples only because of your grace. Bless us and keep us as we go, Lord. Convict us of sin. Convict us of distractions. Convict us of blind spots. Lord, may we serve you well. May we serve you to your glory and to the furtherance of your gospel. Again, for the sake of your son, for the sake of your gospel. We give you all the praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.